Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. I am your host for today. I'm Melissa Valentine. I'm an Associate Professor of Management Science and Engineering here at Stanford. My own research is how technology changes people's jobs. So that's certainly true for entrepreneurs and certainly true for our founders today, who are both founders of digital, uh, digital health companies. There is also special significance to the themes for today, um, as you'll see. Um, both uh, Kiki and Jerica run companies that um, provide services for communities who have been impacted by policy change. So let me say specifically, um, Plume and Hey Jane are both reaching people whose lives have been dramatically affected by changes in public policy at both the federal and state levels. So that would include the overturning of Roe v. Wade and state laws that restrict gender affirming healthcare for transgender people. So there's special significance to these themes and the staff at ETL, the producers had a sort of a visionary idea to use this as an opportunity to think about how entrepreneurship can be a vehicle for change, how entrepreneurship can be a way of reacting to public policy and how entrepreneurship can be a vehicle for sort of influencing and driving social change. So that's a really interesting and provocative and really important topic. Um, I think it's great that ETL wanted to um, kind of host this conversation. I'm really honored to be a part of it. Um, that's the significance of today. And with that, let me tell you a little bit more about our founders who we're very lucky to have today. So let me first introduce you to Dr. Jerrica Kirkley. So Dr. Kirkley is the chief medical officer and founder of Plume a virtual healthcare center of excellence. It is dedicated to providing care for the transgender community. Um, it provides gender affirming medical care at the convenience of a smartphone. Jerrica has cared for thousands of gender diverse individuals and has also been the recipient of gender affirming care as a patient and trans woman herself. Her mission is to transform healthcare for all to make it accessible, affordable, and aligned with the needs of individuals to help folks live happy and healthy lives. And I know friends who have personally uh, really benefited from Dr. Kirkley's work. So very excited to have you here today. Uh, the second person who I'm excited to introduce is Kiki Friedman. So Kiki is the CEO and co-founder of Hey Jane, which is a virtual clinic that offers telemedicine abortion care which she founded when she was a student at Harvard Business School. Uh, before she founded Hey Jane, uh, Kiki was an early employee at Uber, where her roles included launching Uber in Kenya, spearheading key operational initiatives on the company's PRO team and leading strategy and expansion for Uber Eats in the Middle East and Africa region. Um, with that, uh, I'm going to now open with some questions for our founders. So, uh, Jerrica and Kiki, um, now that we know a little bit about you and your companies, I'm gonna start with this question. I'd like to talk about your lives and your background and how that led you to this moment. So the question is, how has your lived experience shaped you as entrepreneurs and influenced the way you think about the communities your companies serve? Uh, let's start with you, Jerrica. Sure, <clears throat> thanks Melissa, and really excited to be here alongside both of you um, and all of you listening in, um, really an honor. <clears throat> Wow, uh, you know, I think about that question, it's kind of like, um, uh, it's just so deeply integrated into everything I've done. But if I go back 
to the days when I was thinking about being even going into healthcare, becoming a doctor. Um, for me, that was through a lens of social justice. I've uh, just always um, idealized medicine as a vehicle to do that, and uh, maybe naively so back in back in those early days. Um, but you know, what's cool is I've found a path to do that. And um, so that's what got me into healthcare. And I saw a lot of communities around me that were drastically underserved and wanted to find ways to provide high quality healthcare to those communities. And um, when I was in my family medicine residency, so I'm a family physician by training, and um, I had the opportunity to work with a faculty mentor and build out a curriculum basically dedicated to LGBTQ healthcare in this family medicine residency. And a big part of that was um, developing a, a protocol or, or having like some guidelines within the residency for gender affirming hormone therapy. Um, and it was incredible to be a part of that process with patients um, and also opened my eyes up, my eyes up to the massive gap in care that existed for the trans community uh, in a big way, um, actually as a physician. And so from that point forward, decided to dedicate my life to that. Um, and so I have the lived experience, certainly as a physician, as a healthcare provider who's taking care of many trans people, who's taught healthcare providers on how to support trans folks in a healthcare environment and beyond. Um, but as a trans person myself, and you know, I, I have a lot of privilege being a physician. I, I know about this stuff. I can happily teach my doctor because that's what I do for a living, but nobody else should have to do that. Um, but even with all that knowledge, I still face a lot of the same challenges my patients face, you know, whether it's, um, you know, high tier medications that I'm having to pay for at the pharmacy, uh, having uh, less than ideal experiences in healthcare facilities. So, um, yeah, I've seen it from both those sides. And I think that uh, ultimately really led me to starting Plume and, and going on that journey as an entrepreneur, um, having worked as, as a physician and, and practices for a long time, and in particular, federally qualified health centers and government-funded practices, um, you know, I saw that while it is a system that helps many, um, there are many people in my community who were falling through the cracks and and felt like I needed to go outside that that system to a certain extent to um, really build a care system around uh, a community that I'd seen underserved for a long time. So. That's an introduction to that, uh, <laughs> an answer to that question. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, Kiki. Uh, hey, everyone. Thank you also uh, for hosting. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I think similar to Jerrica, I had always been really struck by healthcare inequities and really motivated to try to address them in some way. I actually initially started um, in, in school and in uh, some of my time right after for more of an international development lens. Um, you mentioned some of the work in Africa. And there, it was really interesting to see a lot of focus on family planning, um, showing, you know, how allowing people to choose when and how they grow their families is absolutely one of the biggest predictors of quality of life, not just for an individual, but for a full community or even country as a whole. Um, coming then back to this to the U.S., where I think many of us have sort of taken abortion access for granted, given, um, you know, many of us having grown up post row it was really striking to see the reversal of many of, um, of those rights, uh, particularly, you know, I was born in the South, went to school in, in Missouri, um, and um, you could just see this really uh, slow but salient progression of erosion of autonomy there. 
I think it was often overlooked again because we took for granted that access, but seeing the you know starkness of the effects in these other contexts, I think made them um, perhaps more more obvious of, of what was really at stake. Um, and then you know, of course, just as a person who who may become pregnant, um, it's uh, infuriating and sad to imagine a world in which you know we wouldn't have the opportunity to um, choose our futures and the the status of our of our own bodies. So. Um, just really motivated me to want to do something about it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for the um, those kind of stories of how you got here. Um, as I sort of mentioned in the introduction, as digital healthcare companies, both Plume and Hey Jane, are reaching people whose lives have just been dramatically affected by changes in public policy recently. Um, so it's really exciting to kind of take this lens of entrepreneurship on thinking through some of this. It's um, exciting to hear from you both on this. How do public policy and entrepreneurship intersect in your companies? And how do you think the role of entrepreneurship should be shaping and supplementing public policy in general? Um, Jerrica, let's start with you. Sure. Yeah, um, probably no secret to many people in this room. There have been many anti-trans bills specifically proposed in the last three years. In fact, 390 and 155 in 2022. Um, so policy interacts in a big way uh, with the work that we do since we are entirely dedicated to serving the trans community. Uh, many of these bills also, of course, overlap with, with the healthcare context. Um, but even beyond that, the, those are the ones you see in the news, but there, there's also nuances to the care that we do and medications that we provide um, that are affected by various laws and various regulations. Um, so it is, um, yeah, it's very intricately linked to everything that we're doing. And, um, you know, I think entrepreneurs in general tend to operate at the margins to a certain extent, right? We're often trying to solve problems that our industries um, haven't attended to well. Um, so we kind of have to step outside the mainstream. And when you do that, you tend to be uh, one, I think, under the microscope a bit more and two, um, having to confront a lot more regulatory issues and, and legal and policy issues than maybe otherwise. Um, so, uh, so we're navigating it every day. And I, I've personally, I mean, we make this a part of our vision, which is of course, first and foremost, to provide direct patient care, um, but also to use that patient care, the insights we gain and the data we have to actually inform not only guidelines for care inside Plume and outside of Plume for all trans people, uh, but also policy change and uh, to truly transform healthcare for every trans life. Um, and for the past 12 months, I've spent a lot of time meeting with legislators, um, going to uh, the House, the Senate, White House administration, um, and making sure that people are aware of, of the needs of the trans community, especially in a healthcare context. Um, so yeah, it's on our minds every day for sure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Kiki, thanks. We have also been navigating a fairly dynamic regulatory environment recently. And of course, the fall of Roe really exacerbated a lot of the standing issues, but we've been tracking a lot of this closely for a while. And um, SB8, I think, was really a precipitating factor as well out of Texas. Um, when Roe fell, we had to essentially reevaluate the locations of all of our providers as we um, assessed you know, laws that were rolling out in real time. One of our really amazing doctors was driving every single day from Ohio to Pennsylvania in order to be able to provide care. Um, <clears throat> I do think that entrepreneurship has a huge role to play in supplementing political failings and policy failures. 
um, we're able to, to move more quickly, to try new things, to innovate, um, you know, where larger infrastructural changes cannot. I think in the case of hygiene, you know, we're able to reduce travel distances by allowing people to get care delivered directly to their home or just over a border into a legal state. We can provide emotional support at their fingertips because, uh, you know, via messaging in our app. Um, but I also think it's really important to acknowledge it's not a panacea. Um, there's no way for any single business to uh, overrule these massive changes um, and, and the impacts they have. So sure, we can make things easier, but the logistical burdens are still huge when you have bans across entire states. Um, we can provide more emotional support than may have been available before, but the anxiety of having your body criminalized is something that we're not going to be able to overcome um, without more infrastructural change. Um, so we just think that good policy, good business has to coexist. We're supporting research to help drive that policy forward, showing again and again that the model is safe, effective, patients prefer it um, in many cases. So hopefully um, we'll see some movement and science-driven um, policy decisions soon. Yeah, I appreciate that. I remember, yeah, as we were discussing at the start, you were saying um, important, but not, it's also important to ask what entrepreneurship can't do. So I love the sort of descriptions here of what it can do, and then also, you know, kind of the boundaries of it, what, what it can't do. Um, so both of your companies provide healthcare to communities that are impacted by public policy, um, but also face cultural and social marginalization that lead to inequitable healthcare. So how do your companies work to serve patients in an equitable way and address equity in the healthcare system as a whole? Um, yeah, well, you know, I think we um, think very deeply about that phrase, health equity. It's funny, I'm smiling because it's something that I've been hearing for 25, 30 years now. Um, but I will say people are talking about it uh, and seem to be acting on it in a, in a way that is nuanced and different than the last 25 to 30 years. Um, we're a company that's entirely dedicated to one of the most marginalized communities in the world. Um, so it's at the very heart of what we do. Um, when we think about equity, uh, of course, access comes to mind. Um, there is not universal training when it comes to gender affirming care for health professionals, right? And that's one of the reasons that we did this because even just finding a provider that can provide that care for you is incredibly hard. We also know that a third of trans people are actively discriminated against in a healthcare facility in this country. Um, so having virtual access that's safe, that's comfortable and expert, um, and you have clinical and cultural competence is incredibly important and, and a virtual environment allows us to do that. Um, so, so access is a big part of that equity piece and, um, but also affordability. And that's something that we're been looking at a lot. Um, and, and I think there's uh, one thing I was thinking about in that last conversation was, yes, there are bounds when it comes to policy, um, but there's also a lot of ways we can be creative in the systems that we have. And, and what I've noticed is the conversation can look quite different than what you see in the media with all these bills, you know, being passed um, compared to what is actually happening in the healthcare industry and specifically around the conversation of health equity and specifically around the trans community, um, you know, we're talking to a lot of employers, a lot of health insurance companies who really want to find a way to care for their trans universe um, and employees. They just don't know how. And they've tried 10 years ago and they failed. And they're now they're like, hey, how do we do this? 
Um, and so that is encouraging to see and, um, and really, you know, I think thinking about it in different ways, not only just how can we have a service to, to what kind of service can provide this, but also again, how can we creatively pay for it and thinking about alternative payment models and things like that. So, um, so there is a lot of energy around this in a big way, uh, more so than I've seen it in the past and specifically with the community that we're serving, um, uh, yeah. And so I think that's one of the things that keeps me energized is like, it is hard to go out and see the headlines. Um, but it is nice to know that, um, there are many people on the inside who are really trying to push this forward as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, financial accessibility has been a huge focus for us. We've been seeing, as Jarek mentioned, um, a lot of appetite from insurance payers to get involved and support this type of work. Um, and I think in ways that hadn't been seen before, um, we um, recently launched our first payer uh, contract with Aetna, which we're really excited about and are pushing hard for Medicaid as well, um, given that it'll have the highest impact on our patient population, about 50% make under 25,000 um, per year. We also do a lot of listening to ensure ongoing equity within our communities. Um, abortion affects such an incredibly broad swath of people, and so making sure that we have representatives from those communities who can give us real-time feedback on small details to the site, all the way up to you know how we apply much broader justice frameworks. I think is really key. Um, and another thing that I think entrepreneurship and particularly tech entrepreneurship really allows for is that ongoing testing and iteration and these feedback loops that allow you to constantly be learning from from your patients. Um, in general, just reminding ourselves not to reinvent the wheel, to look at the existing literature and all of the um, amazing partnerships from folks already in the space um, has been really helpful as well as we think about expanding equity. Do you mind if I add something there? Please, 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 please yes. add, Thank Jack, you. A thought. Um, yeah, I think the other way that we uh, didn't mention this before, but think about equity is the care teams, right? And the company that we're building. And, you know, we're entirely dedicated to trans community. And from those very early days, uh, we wanted to make sure that we're having folks from the gender diverse community being a part of this company, right? And everything from our care team, our care coordinators, who are the frontline folks, triaging questions that are coming in, our physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, um, our nursing teams, all the way to our product teams, our marketing teams, our operations teams, because everybody that touches this, like really needs to have a deep understanding of what these folks are going through. And um, so trying to insert as much of that lived experience into those teams as possible. And of course, also bring on allies um, who are going to make that leap and bring them, you know, themselves along and learn um, and also be able to offer that both clinical and cultural competency um, when thinking about how we're building these systems. Um, again, not only the care teams and how we do that, but how we're, how we're building a company. And I think we think about it in two pathways. One is, of course, our patients. We want to make sure that they're taken care of um, and we're driving really strong health outcomes, but also our company. Uh, this is a unique place. I mean, over 50% of our company is gender diverse in some way, many intersectionalities beyond that. Um, and really is a unique unique space of employment. You know, we have employees every day who are uh, coming out, you know, on the job and, you know, um, it, which is amazing. And people that say that they feel safer in a way that they haven't felt in other environments. Um, and uh, we really take a growth and development perspective, um, you know, and we want folks to, of course, progress through the organization. That's great. Um, but if they find opportunities elsewhere uh, where they can really leverage the skills and things that they've learned here at Plume, then that's also a victory. Um, so, so, yeah, really like a, a two-pronged approach in terms of how we think about um, equity in the trans community. Yeah, 
Oh yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um, so um, we've talked kind of. So your companies are are, are just um, you know they're they're notable and they're significant for the policy challenges that they are navigating. And then as we were just sort of talking about some of the social and cultural marginalization that can happen and some of the equity issues that come up around that, um, I want to connect these. Um, I want to connect these, and I want to ask you for stories of. Uh, I'm, I'm building on one of the student questions. I want to talk about business for a second. I want to talk about because you're building businesses, like you're dealing with like sort of extreme policy change and regulation. You're dealing with, you know, cultural marginalization in a lot of cases um, and your business people, your entrepreneurs, you're like running businesses. So um, I'm pulling in one of the student questions. Can you tell us about sort of like a make or break moment in your business, like a make or break decision that you had to make as you were sort of um, being like true, like entrepreneurs, like you're solving this through business, through entrepreneurship. So do you have a story? Can you tell us a story, like make or break story for your business? It's probably every day, okay. <laughs> every decision that we make, right? Um, no, I think, um, yeah, there's definitely been some big moments. I, I, I do go back to the first time we went out and raised money. Um, you know, it was, <laughs> it was like literally, so my, I should mention my co-founder, um, amazing co-founders helping with some childcare because um, I have a single mom and have a kid who's at a festival right now. I got to go see the first half. He took over is doing the second half. So if there's any interruptions, um, that's what that's from. But, um, you know, we, we were two doctors with a dream. I mean, literally in, in Denver, you know, taped a sign on a door of a borrowed clinic and saw our first patients. Um, and we knew the potential that was there. Um, ran that pilot and went out and raised money. And it, I mean, just that moment of landing that first funding um, is totally make or break, you know? Uh, oh. Startups are, you know, default dead, right? And um, uh, that, I think we knew the potential was there, um, but then hearing that from the venture capital community um, just really affirmed it in a, in a way that maybe we didn't even totally, you know, <laughs> understand or believe even, even as much as we wanted it to happen. Um, so that was a pretty incredible moment. And I think, um, let us know that this was, this was really possible. Um, and we've carried that momentum a long way. I think, yeah, I mean, you go through rounds of funding and you just learn so much about your business. And I think, um, you know, when we started out and so much has changed in the last three years as well. Um, we started out at a purely direct consumer offering and tried to pick a price point that was, you know, generally accessible and created a access fund to go with that. Um, but even then, right, like there was not the interest from health insurers that we're seeing now, right? This whole health, health equity conversation, again, it's just like taken mm. off, but really in the last six to 12 months, um, in a big way. And so to think like, oh, wow, yeah, we're going to, you know, create contracts with every major payer in the country. That sounds great, but that didn't feel like a, a total reality, you know, three years ago. Um, and so that was sort of an, I think one of those moments where I was like, Hey, like, one, for this to be viable, like we need to do this. Um, it's the right thing to do. And uh, and now there's actually an appetite for it, right? And so kind of a lot aligned at once. And I think about like expanding our scope of services as well. And um, uh, so, so yeah, I think this last, like that first and our last raise were sort of the big, mm. um, two of those bigger moments for me anyways. Yeah, awesome. 
So how do you think about upholding your company's values when there's like legal consequences or other kinds of risks to doing so? Um, can you also give us just another example of a time when um, there was either a legal risk or some sort of other challenge you had to, to deal with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, listen, our primary goal is to serve patients. Patients are at the center of every single thing we do. We are not going to be able to fulfill our goal if we get shut down. So even if there are risks that individuals on the team may be comfortable taking, we have to keep that bigger picture in mind. Um, there was recently a really tough decision that we had to make um, to relocate some members of our team. For context on this, um, and I will say this is one of the um, few sort of bright spots in the abortion regulatory space right now that's not getting a lot of press coverage, interestingly enough, so I like telling people about it. Um, there's these um, frameworks emerging called shield laws that basically say we, as a progressive state, will not participate with cross-state lawsuits, so extradition subpoenas, um, from other hostile states related to reproductive health care. Obviously, this is really critical in a time like now where the penalty, you know, the consequences can be extremely high um, for providing medical care. So we made the decision to require all of our team members to, to move to these states with shield laws to protect the patients themselves and the business as a whole. There was pushback because a lot of people on the team come from a background of activism and they were comfortable getting arrested. Um, but ultimately, it's not about the individual's risk tolerance. It's about what we have to do as a business to, to continue striving towards our mission. And so we did have to make mm -hmm. that, that tough call. Oh, interesting. Yeah, great example. I think Kiki had the nail on the head. Um, you know, you have these individual decisions. Um, again, why they can be, we want people to feel empowered, but like we're talking about care for thousands of individuals here, you know, and um, we always have to keep that in mind. <clears throat> and we haven't faced, I guess, like a particular scenario yet um, to be put in a situation of, you know, do you do this or that? Um, I mean, we made decisions early on trying to navigate the laws, like, for example, you know, there's states where we just can't prescribe testosterone virtually, right? And so that is, I guess, a decision that we did have to make early and say, like, yeah, we could do this and we could wait for that slap on the wrist, which might turn into something, you know, much more, um, but we didn't. And so, like, there's states where we prescribe, you know, more kind of estrogen only or estrogen supportive medications and then find other ways to support folks, whether through mental health support, virtual peer support groups and that kind of thing. Um, so that was something we did have to do early on. And, and, you know, now that I think about it, we did, you know, have to kind of hem and haw about that because, um, we were worried, of course, we want people to get care, you know, worried about what is that going to look like, you know, from, um, an image or reputation thing within the trans community. And I think, uh, I mean, folks have been, of course, very understanding. Um, but that is something that, you know, we still don't do in some states and there's, with the PHE, you know, in effect, there's other exemptions that we're able to to work under, and there's a lot of unknowns that are, you know, with if and when that PHE expires and what that's going to look like. So, um, but uh, but yeah, I think we always have to think about how are we, you know, doing the most good for the most people. Um, and then I've seen, um, yeah, like hospital systems have to make incredibly hard decisions, especially when it comes to trans youth care you know, and, and hospital systems basically saying that they're not going to, to do that care um, or else they'll be shut down, right? Because of these just incredibly punitive laws that are coming from the states. Um, so, it, I mean, it's on, on our minds all the time, but I guess that would be like a specific example of something that we did have to do early on. Yeah, yeah. 
Maybe I could add on to that by also sharing some examples of times when we expected there to be a potential conflict, but it actually ended up being like mm -hmm. a totally optimal situation, both for the business and for the patients. Um, we actually very recently launched a sliding scale payment method. Our pricing uh, before was 249, national average is 550. We were already well under that. We were able to reduce that to 199 for patients based off of self-reported income uh, with higher prices at the higher end. Our average revenue for, per patient went up by a dollar. Um, so we were able to essentially increase conversion across that spectrum, increase access across that spectrum, and not impact our unit economics at all. And I think finding these sort of like win-wins is one of the greatest joys of the job. And I think there really is so much um, opportunity there. But I think the, you know, often social impact and business are viewed in conflict. And I just don't think that that's true based off of my experience. Ah. That's great. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with you actually for a um because I know that you've actually recently gotten some other good news. So um that's a, a story of where things turned out for you. So here's another one. So uh you've just completed 6.1 million round of fundraising. And I know oftentimes fundraising as a um woman entrepreneur is often painted as a difficult or even impossible challenge. But I think you had something to say to that. So um yeah, what does your success sort of tell you about, you know, yeah, fundraising as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I would say that fundraising is hard, always, right? Like regardless of circumstances, it's difficult. Um, I will say that even since I started Hey Jane, we have seen such an influx of funds being created by underrepresented um, founders for underrepresented founders addressing needs that underrepresented founders more commonly identify. I will make the pitch to those in the audience who are interested in VC that this to me is like such an obvious arbitrage, right? Like there's these massively overlooked markets um, that no one is touching. First movers are beginning to get into those spaces and we are already seeing unicorns emerge within them. They are going to be very well rewarded for being on the leading edge. Um, you know, we've had some investors tell us that women's health is niche. It's a trillion dollar market. Like it's just not niche. Um, and I think people are really beginning to see that um, and, uh, and move their capital accordingly. One other thing I've been thinking about recently as it relates to certain groups having more difficulty fundraising, I don't want to underplay that. I also want to recognize like absolutely have privilege as a white woman raising relative to other, you know, underrepresented groups. So not to say it's not hard, it is. Um, but I think as the market shifts, it'll be really interesting to see whether or not these startups that have not had access necessarily to the, let's say, exuberant funding markets of the past few years will be the ones that make it because we've had to think about sustainability. We've had to build businesses that don't rely on constant injections of external funding. Um, and I'm pretty optimistic to see what emerges there. Yeah, great. Uh, Derica, um, let me ask this question. How um, you've talked about the kind of exciting moment where, you know, funders recognized and sort of rewarded what they saw um, in your business model. Um, you've also kind of talked about the challenges of being a venture-backed company that's working on healthcare for a stigmatized community. Um, so how do you navigate your relationship with funders in light of those kinds of dynamics and challenges? Yeah, um, you know, I think the, the well, so one thing that's been nice is 
the funds, and there have been many more funds, as Kiki mentioned, who are really focusing on underrepresented communities. Um, but all the funds that we've been working with, and a lot of the ones that we've talked to, um, you know, who aren't necessarily investing in this, are, I think, very excited about supporting the trans community and about the idea. Um, there's a whole, you know, business side of it where you have to convince folks as well. This this idea, of, um, uh, you know, being a venture backed company in a, in a healthcare field focusing on a marginalized community, that relationship navigation really comes more with the healthcare provider community. And um, and trying to bring folks along there, you know, certainly there was a lot of trust building for our patient community that we've done the last three years, and um, you know now we're getting to that point of I think really doing that in a big way for the healthcare provider community, um, where many people, many healthcare providers who serve underrepresented communities are typically working in FQHCs, just like I was, right? That's where I was for five years before I started Bloom, um, and and the framework is very different, right? And of course, it's a very grassroots approach um, and reliant on grant funding and with very limited resources. Um, and and what's interesting, there's a lot of parallels to that, of course, when you get into a startup environment. Um, but you do have a bit more flexibility and agility to, I think, cater systems to the community in a way that I couldn't find a way to do in, in those other environments. Um, but basically convincing folks that, hey, actually, no, like we're really building systems that truly center patients. Um, that are taking into account access and equity um, and trying to do that at scale. And uh, that can feel un uncomfortable for many who have been spending their whole lives doing this. And, you know, you feel like you're on a treadmill and you're not getting anywhere and, and you're constantly um, being told that you can't do X, Y, Z for your patients. Um, and so, um, you know, but I think kind of a moment that, that happened recently, we went to the World Professional Association of Transgender Health Global Conference uh, about a month ago um, presented an abstract that was based on some data from our patients looking at fertility desires uh, with, among trans folks and over 10,000 people in this abstract. And this was to date the largest abstract ever presented on the trans community period uh, by, by far. Um, and there was an audible gasp in the room, this packed room at a global healthcare conference of a bunch of healthcare providers, right? Um, you know, and I think that, uh, and I can say this gets back to like, you know, being a uh, yeah somebody from an underrepresented community who's dedicated, to, you know, caring for that community, um, it can feel a bit like this sort of minority tax, right? Where it's like you got to be two times, you know, faster, stronger, smarter than everybody out there, right? Even just to be like, oh yeah, okay, you're cool, you're legit. Um, and I think there can be a lot of that, and it's and it's funnily enough, uh, it was minimally on the investor side and more on the oh. healthcare provider side in terms of convincing folks that um, this is actually a meaningful way to provide care. And um, uh, so, yeah. Mm, oh, that's so interesting. Um, well, let me stay with you for a moment. Um, we now yeah, get a chance to hear student questions. So the students have been posting in the, the Q&A in the chat. Um, and I think one of them kind of segues nicely. Um, that's such an interesting perspective that you feel like the, or not you feel like that your experience was that um, with investors, you felt like maybe it was easier than with healthcare providers to sort of share this. Um, so the, the student question was, um, sort of staying with this idea of, of kind of like pitching your idea um, to investors. So how easy was it to pitch your idea to investors? Um, did you feel like the venture capitalists were evaluating it through the lens of profit, exponential growth, or more through the lens of social justice? Like, did you have a sense that like one or the other message was really kind of 
uh, yeah, getting purchased with the with the venture capitalists. Yeah, I mean, it's all of them. You know, I think uh, you, you, it's really, you can't really leave any of those out. Um, I think we, given the work that we're doing, we probably, you know, gravitated towards funds that had a really like social justice or mission oriented vision. Um, uh, and, and that was certainly helpful. Um, so there, there, there was certainly some education that had to be done, um, but didn't feel like we had to do a whole lot to convince people that this was like a needed service, right? Um, I think people could definitely get behind that. And I think where the bulk of it was like, okay, like, how do you explain how you're going to make a sustainable business out with your TAM? You know, um, and that, that, was, that was the conversation, like every single mm. pitch, right? And every single diligence after that. Uh, you know, you get to your series B and then you have, you can like kind of stop explaining that, like people get it and there's ways to do it. Um, but, um, but yeah, that was probably where most of the work was done to, um, hmm. to get people to that moment of, you know, thinking about investing, but yeah, fortunately, you know, hopefully that's a sign that things are changing. Uh, didn't have to convince folks too much that this was like needed and a, and a, mm -hmm. a good idea to invest mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, how about you for the same <laughs> um, I would say our experience was oh we did have a few pitches that I found particularly frustrating because um they came away from it asking, well, should this be a charity? We have substantially higher revenue than the average series A digital health company, better margins, a fantastic team. Why would we make it a charity? Uh, uh, what about this suggests that this would be a charity is basically my question. Um, so I think that some people are still, you know, learning that this dichotomy that I referred to earlier does not necessarily exist, that you can genuinely achieve. Um, you know, social outcomes with a sustainable, uh, big, profitable business. Um, but for the most part, I think our questions that we got were similar to, to what Jerrica mentioned, rationalizing TAM, um, under like explaining the product to people who haven't heard it before, um, and that, you know, conveying it as a credible opportunity that can grow. All right, so um, we're actually gonna kind of take a right turn here. Um, I have a question about platform dynamics. So the question is, how do you work to mitigate abuse or misaligned incentives on your platforms? So the example that's given is um, where companies might have um, issues like overprescription or to because they're trying to grow their business and make money. Um, so yeah, as platform companies, essentially, I guess, like as platform companies, how do you work um, to avoid those sorts of issues? I would say for us, I mean, it's something we think a lot about and having seen Cerebral in particular um, go the way that it did, it really comes down to culture and particularly, I think, the responsibility and vision that you set from the top. Um, we want to be a long-term business, that means, and we want to be a responsible business that de delivers the highest quality of care. Um, those incentives are created and making sure that you have a culture that's aligned towards that vision that won't create those incentives, um, I think has been, has been essential. Yeah, culture is huge, um, and you really have to build that from day one. I think um, something that both my co-founder and I have been really focused on from the beginning. And one sort of protective mechanism we have is, you know, we provide a clinical service, but not necessarily a pill, 
Um, there's many medications which we prescribe to support folks and whether it's gender affirming hormone therapy, primary care, mental health support. Um, it doesn't mean you're completely immune to it and you see, you, know, you see fraud and abuse happening in the legacy healthcare system, right? Um, in fact, that's where the biggest examples of that are. Cerebral is getting a lot of attention now, but I mean, take a look at your <laughs> run-of-the-mill provider system um, and uh, you'll see some pretty, uh, pretty big fraud examples. And so, um, yeah, but with that, you know, we're providing care to folks and again, like whatever is required to do that. Um, and always keeping it like incredibly patient centered, whereas we're not really, it doesn't matter. Like if it's, you know, <laughs> estrogen tablets or testosterone injections or antidepressants, um, uh, we're not tracking it in that way. Um, and also this is the other piece, you know, I think focusing on the health outcomes and that can be something that's emerging in the digital health world, but something that I don't think has been done a lot um, historically, at least like, you know, going back to the last five to 10 years. And, um, that's what we're watching. You know, we want to know like, okay, regardless of what's prescribed, are we decreasing rates of depression and anxiety? Um, are we increasing quality of life? Are we making an impact in social determinants of health? Um, and I think that is a space in particular where entrepreneurs and startups can be incredibly effective as Kiki noted before, you know, it could just be much more agile, um, and the systems that we use and being able to collect data in a robust way. Um, and, and use it for the better. Awesome. This has been um, just really compelling and interesting to talk with you both. Um, we're to our final question. They told me as guest host, I get the last question. I am actually going to piggyback on a student question. Um, it's going to be about uh, technology and data, just to warn you. Um, but just to sort of like, you know, set the context for the, you know, sort of the end of the conversation. Um, we've you know, we've been talking today about entrepreneurship as a way of reacting to public policy. And both of you have been leading companies that sort of give you the chance to try to solve problems um, for communities that are, you know, being affected by public policy. Um, so there's, we've talked about challenges, we've talked about um, just ways that's a very particular, you know, kind of entrepreneurship and particular challenges you face. Um, I want to I want to end actually just like talking a little bit about digital healthcare and just talking about like platforms and the rise of and technology. So the student question is is um, and I guess I'm I'm starting it like that because I'd love to hear you kind of link together your vision for you know social change for policy sort of reacting to policy and so forth. Um, but the question is like, do you see a shift in kind of healthcare paradigm with the rise of technology? Um, so Jerrica, you were talking a little bit about your abstract, right? You have 10,000, N equals 10,000, and that's never happened. And that's because you have, you know, data like at kind of a bigger scale than it has ever happened before. Um, so do you see a, a paradigm shift in the healthcare industry because of the rise of technology? And how does that sort of influence some of the things that you're working on? Uh, and feel free to like use it as a chance to kind of do like a, a wrap up, a final, final statement. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, yeah, the only way that we can even do that is because we have a distributed virtual company that's providing services all over the country. And um, you just can't do that in a single geographic location. It is literally impossible when you are talking about serving a community that is so marginalized and underserved um, uh, based on provider availability, but also just the way the population is distributed. So, um, and that's why we haven't seen it to date, right? And that's why we are seeing it now. You know, we're seeing companies like CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, all of them have opened up these decentralized uh, clinical research units in the last two years, you know, to specifically leverage digital technology to conduct clinical trials. And, um, 
uh, yeah, so I think technology, you know, being able to do that virtually, meeting patients where they are, um, has actually radically changed, uh, started to change the care paradigm. I think we're going to see um, a whole lot more of that over the next few years. Awesome. Yeah, totally agree. I think we've been able to see just how the frequency of data collection allows for such a greater nuance of understanding of what patients want in their experience, um, and that we're able to quickly iterate and adapt to those preferences as we discover them. Um, Jerrica references as well, but um, the community element, I think, has been really critical and something that's only enabled by technology and scale. Um, we have a forum where patients having an abortion can connect with other peers going through the same thing at the same time, normalize their experience. And that's something that really could never be done before. Um, so as we think about ways to confront these stigmatized or isolating moments, um, I think that will be really, really significant. And the last thing I'll say there, and I mean, Kiki's alluding to it, but we actually have data to show that within the trans community, just support from another adult can decrease depression rates by as much as 40% and probably more, quite frankly. And we're not even talking about the physician. It doesn't even have to be somebody in healthcare. It's just the support of a peer, right? And whether whether that's you know somebody who's a youth or an adult, just having that support um, goes so far. So if you are able to provide that support in a you know digitally leveraged way, that is just as meaningful. Um, and that, that to me is like, wow, that's mind blowing, right? Because if you know that, you don't have to navigate licenses and a whole bunch of regulatory issues. Um, you just gotta be able to bring it to folks. And, um, and of course that goes for uh, many communities in terms of having that support. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.